singularity. My name is Nicola and you're watching Singularity FM, the place where we interview the future. If you guys enjoy this podcast, you can show your support by either writing a review on iTunes or by simply becoming a patron via interviewthefuture.com. Today, my guest on the show has been named one of the world's 10 most influential intellectuals by MIT. Douglas Rushkoff is an award-winning author, broadcaster, and documentarian who studies human autonomy in the digital age. He is the host of the popular Team Human podcast and has written 20 books, including the bestsellers Present Shock and Program or Be Programmed. So, Douglas Rushkoff, welcome to Singularity FM. Hi, good to be with you. Fantastic. So, uh, let me ask you this. How do you feel invited on a kind of a singularitarian slash transhumanist show? Well, it depends. We'll find out, you know, <laughs> I don't, you don't, you don't, singularity means a lot of different things to a lot of different people, you know, the people who hate humans or hate themselves or, uh, they, uh, they look to the singularity as the moment of, of escape or apocalypse or the end or whatever. And I, I mean, I, I, and I think a lot of other people look at it as a, a much, uh, more a simple benevolent moment you know i think that if as 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 computers learn to you know think or process faster or in, in more complicated ways than humans uh, it's really as i see it no different than the day we made a steam engine that could be as strong as a human or an ox, you know, it, it doesn't, it doesn't mean that we'll, um, uh, or a recording, you know, oh, look, we've recorded a person's voice. Now they never have to sing in the same room again. No, you know, once we recorded a person's voice, we've come to see what the difference is between a live performance and, uh, you know, and a recording. Or once we get photography, it didn't make art go away, which people predicted at first, it led to you know, impressionism and abstract art. So, you know, it's all good if we realize that it's not about obsolescing humanity, but uh, uh, if anything, uh, learning what, what the truly human is. Fantastic. And kind of that has been the point of my work for the last 10 years, uh, if I may say. Uh, basically, one of the theses, or arguably the thesis that kind of ra runs across the time of my blog is that I started from sort of the ethical... Socratic point of view, which is why my blogging name is Socrates. Um, and my thesis has been that technology is not enough. It's necessary, but it's not sufficient. So I believe we're going to have a fantastic conversation. But before we jump into the nitty gritty, let me roll the tape back a little bit and just ask you, who is Douglas Rushkoff? Who is just the human Douglas Rushkoff? I mean, that's that's a big question, right? Precisely. You know, what is that? You know, I could approach that from any any direction. You know, I mean, as I understand Douglas Rushkoff, I'm a, I'm a, uh, really, I'm a, a theater director who got uh, fed up with the elitism and 
oversimplified narrative of most theater. You know, the demand of audiences for an ending and this sense of dissatisfaction if they didn't get one. Um, it seemed to me that, that, you know, theater was losing its relevance and connection to people and the, the, the sort of financial landscape of the world wasn't supporting people actually just doing and enjoying theater with each other. And right around then is when the uh, internet came up. So I became interested in interactivity and multimedia. And I became something of a, I guess, a media theorist in that I got really interested in the relationship, and I still am, the relationship between real life and theater and technologically mediated experiences. So who I am is someone who looks at all that and tries to do, uh, uh, I'm trying to do kind of uh, group psychotherapy on our society, you know, and, and help people figure out what matters and what doesn't and, uh, you know, to behave better with each other. But yeah, I'm a kind of a, a, a creative person and lateral thinker. I like comparing and contrasting different things and looking for patterns and and moving on and i'm i'm i've been a little pessimistic for the last five or ten years and i'm trying to make myself more hopeful you know because i think that if i can be i'm just writing a piece about this now but i feel like if we tell everybody that the world's ending or the climate change is coming and going to kill all the species, then big business will bet on that outcome and bring <laughs> it about. So now what I'm trying to do is to say, oh no, you know, climate change is going to be averted. Everyone cares. Everyone's going to be doing solar and wind and geothermal and um, that the people that get in early on climate change solutions are going to be the next billionaires. You know, most... <laughs> <laughs> We're going to grab a few themes of, of those that you just mentioned, but most people don't know that you started with sort of a pre-medicine, then you went into theater, then you went into media and eventually technology. And speaking about theater, you know, there's been a lot written about the theaterization of everything around us from even things like war. Uh, and, you know, there's been a lot of uh, stuff written on the theater of war that we've been experiencing since uh, at least probably perhaps the first Gulf War in the 90s and, and onwards. And then perhaps all the way to the theaterization of politics <laughs> nowadays. So how do you think that sort of background for you helps you to look at technology and come up with a different point of view because you know the biggest people or theorists today or or pundits anyway are usually like entrepreneurs uh, or inventors like Ray Kurzweil they're sort of technologists and you come from theater which is very very strange and weird if you will they're business people so they're not pure philosophers they're not looking at the the ongoing welfare of the human species as their prime motivation. They're trying to sell a product, you know, or a service or get themselves funded, you know, and, and those of us who are doing this in a kind of the spirit of, of pure public intellectual activity, we're pretty few and far between. And almost all of us are 
fed up with the market and the way digital technology got got surrendered to it. You know, the the what you're calling the theatricalization of politics and and war. I mean, you could look at it that way, or you could look at it as this is what happens when your society lacks theater, when you don't have it, is that the things of the real world become acted. You know, there's no because it's not it's not theater. It's it's maybe theatrical, but it's much more like uh, reality TV than it is like like theater. You it's know, theater more of has, an entertainment rather than art. Yeah, but in a, in without without the character Puck coming out at the beginning of the play saying, "Pardon, gentles all, that this stage would represent the world. Please suspend your disbelief and move with us into this." fantasy world reality tv pretends that it's real it takes real video footage and edits it together into a totally fake lie of a story but the the pretense is that it's is that it's real even more real than professional wrestling tried to make itself be you know and there were people who watched professional wrestling and thought it was I mean, it's real in a sense, but they thought it was two people in combat with each other, which it's not. It's two athletes doing a very complicated uh, dance. Choreography. Uh, in, yeah, but it's it's hard. It's hard and real and painful, and I can't do it myself, but it's not combat. Uh, and But you can likewise, choreograph it because you're a stage fight choreographer. Yeah, I know what it is. I could choreograph it, but um, <laughs> I would get hurt doing it with those guys. Throwing, I, I don't I have that level of skill. You know, I could do some hand-to-hand. -hand. I can do quarterstaff and rapier dagger, a um, little broadsword. Um, but uh, I, I couldn't do, you know, the, the flips and falling in the... the uh, not at this age, anyway. Um, so I respect their... I expect I respect their craft. I just, I just don't mean to... I don't want to diss them. But And I respect the craft of reality television producers and reality television actors. They're actors. They're professionals. They're paid. This is real. Um, they're told what to do in the scene, and then they do it, and pretty believably. Uh, but when uh, uh, I feel like, in, in part, we when we lack um, ritualized narrative experiences, we start to project them onto our world, you know. And and yeah, and I would say definitely, as a theater director, it's easier for me to see Donald Trump's performance. You know, I can watch when he's tr coming up with a new bit or, uh, you know, I, I, I understand <laughs> how improv actors work and what he's doing, you know, and, and the way in which he's playing this part. But. Uh, but it's not it's not it's sad. It's not real theater. And I do think if we had real theater, we might not. Uh, we might not have fallen into this this spectacle, but the spectacle you're talking about is is what the Frankfurt Group was warning us about. This is exactly what Adorno and Horkheimer and Benjamin, they were saying this. By the 80s and 90s, most academics in America, most thinkers, dismissed those folks, saying, look, we had all this TV, and we got the internet, that society of spectacle never happened. It just did. You know, it just did bigger bigger than ever. So uh, now is when we should uh, kind of reread those folks and see uh, uh, what happened. Yeah, I agree completely. Another group that sort of came up 
or started its ascent to prominence around the 90s was the group of the futurists and nowadays it seems like everyone's a futurist so in the 1990s you wrote this piece uh, why futurists suck let me ask you do futurists still suck today and why yeah they do they suck look what they did i mean this is what happened the the Futurists got hired by business to tell them what was going to happen or what was most likely to happen so that the businesses could bet on it. And the more futurists came to dominate business, the more that business saw the future as something that's fixed, that they should prepare and adapt to, rather than something that they could change. So if we we can look at climate change, as some futurists might tell us, this is what's going to happen. Here's when the Earth's going to warm up too much. Here's all those people are going to die and prepare for that inevitability. Or we could look at, well, what could we do as humans? What could we do as a business to actually change the future, to make the future something that we want? So the, the futurists that I was meeting in the 90s were all of these kind of wired magazine approved authority <laughs> figures in things who were pitching a very pro-business future. They were basically reactionary forces saying all this disruption is really superficial. Wall Street and the stock market will remain just fine through this whole next revolution. I mean, Alvin Toffler was a real futurist. That was before this breed of fake fakers. Alvin Toffler was one who said in every major age, there's going to be a new form of government and a new form of economics. Totally new. So we got the agriculture, you know, brought us the monarchy and central currency, you know. So what will, um, uh, what will this bring? Uh, something as different from, from the republic you know, as as the Republic was from the monarchy and the monarchy was from uh, whatever that was, you know, the, the late, late medieval feudalism. Mm -hmm. Well, we have people like uh, today, Steven Pinker, who are telling us that we live in the best time of history. We have people like... Uh, right, as long as you don't think about what's happening to everybody else, um, that's fine. You know, and it's like saying, sure, you know, if you take speed and shoot some steroids, all the metrics are going to look better for a little while, aren't they? You know, you're going to have the greatest time of your life until your nervous system fries. So that's sort of the, the, and what is Pinker? Pinker is, is, I was going to say uh, literally, but I don't need the word. Steven Pinker is a neoliberal apologist. He's here to say that neoliberalism works. He's like the the intellectual uh, spokes model for like the Clinton Foundation and Gates Foundation sort of approach to the world that all these billionaires are going to make billions of dollars and then put money back into the places where they took it from and it's all going to be fine. And it's really, it's not. So what's happening to everybody else that we're missing? Well, there, I mean, it depends where. I mean, in some places, things 
are getting better, but in spite of what we in the World Bank and the and the IMF and everybody's doing there. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm excited when I hear about women in Africa using blockchain cryptocurrencies to hide their money from their abusive spouses so they can earn enough, earn enough cash to get divorced rather than beaten. Because these women, they used to work and the husband would beat them and find the cash. So I'm excited about that or about microcurrency transactions in, in India where there's a, a, a new kind of a, a pro-labor movement emerging from the bottom up because they're capable of, of... But what are you worrying about then? That uh, American and other corporations are externalizing uh, uh, slavery and climate abuse to, to the rest of the planet, you know, and that the planet got too small to do that. You know, they're, they're operating as if there's an exhaust pipe in the back of the car and they can keep going forward and never have to breathe that smoke. But they do now, <laughs> you know, it's all, it's all in the same, in the same place we, we've got, we, we're still on a money system that requires accelerating growth in order for it to work. And we've run out of room for accelerating growth. Everybody wants to slow down. We can't buy and sell as much crap. We don't have any more consciousness. We can't, we, we have no more space left. Well, Ray Kurzweil says that we haven't even scratched the surface yet. And he says that the singularity is near. Peter Diamandis says that the future is better than we think, that we would be living in a world of abundance, and that all that we need to do is just to be bold. Well, what's the problem with those visions, or what are those visions missing? Well, most of the ways that they're saying to be bold means find, you know, a wealthy white Stanford graduate who's taken a lot of game theory and systems theory to come up with a single giant one size fits all solution for the planet. You know, that we're just going to engineer these some super thing, you know, or we're going to be bold enough to shoot sulfur into the sky and block the bad rays or throw iron filings into the ocean that <coughs> mine the asteroids well them too um it'd be good to be able to shoot them down if one's going to come hit us but i don't think that's the most likely problem right now i mean there's there's so many others so many imminent ones you know so what does it mean to be bold if we know that the planet's insta uh, insects are heading to extinction yeah, and I that was when just they do today that that piece, yeah. Right. So we know that that if and when they do, we all die. Um now what is being bold? You could say being bold is coming up with drone hummingbees that will fertilize everything and the drone earthworms to air to clean the soil and aerate it and or we could say, huh. Maybe we want to moderate our rapid extraction of resources in the name of capital so that we can uh, sustain the planet a little bit longer. That maybe solutions that don't cost a lot of money, that we should find a way to be able to be allowed to implement low-cost solutions even though they don't contribute to the economy as well they they 
save or to to the capital economy as well. They save more people in less time and with less effort. But it's a real um, it's a real problem that that the easy ways out. I'm relatively easy, like adopting uh, permaculture strategies and and crop rotation and soil maintenance and the sorts of things that really would work are not considered bold by the likes of <laughs> Elon Musk and uh, uh, Peter Thiel or whoever wants to build the next you know space station. Mm -hmm. Let me ask you this. Uh, you say that there's an anti-human agenda deeply embedded at the level of the operating system of our technology, perhaps even at our uh, civilization. Can you sort of unpack that for us, please? Yeah, I mean, it'd be easy if you just people just read a few pages of Team Human, they'll they'll get it a lot easier. Um, there's a lot of ways to look at it, but you know, you want to ask, well, why did digital technology, which was originally intended to connect us all in these wonderful ways and allow for conversations, why is it turned into something that isolates us and represses us and leads us to look at one another as enemies and provokes uh, 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 unthinking? Uh, 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 kind of stimulus response reactions from people instead of thought out ones? You know, why does it try to bring out our worst behavior? Why were the social media companies so compelled to take the algorithms from Las Vegas slot machines and embed them in their, in their operating systems? Why do they use behavioral finance to get us to do stuff against our will? Why would they do that? And they do that because underneath the operating systems of any of these platforms is the operating system of, of, of extractive growth-based corporate capitalism. That, and what that means is not just that there's this ism that's bad. What it means is that the kid who has a great idea and then drops out of college in order to build this wonderful platform idea, he ends up taking money from people he really shouldn't trust. He takes money from Goldman and Morgan Stanley and venture capitalists who then tell him that the money that he's earning with that platform, the millions of dollars he may be earning every quarter with the platform in profit, that's no longer enough. They don't care about the operating profits of the company. They need to be able to sell the company for a hundred times what they invested in it. And that means turning your company from this nice, money-making, profitable, sustainable, helpful application into something that can really extract a whole lot of stuff, something that can become a monopoly in a different area, no matter what the cost to people. So when I say that there's an anti-human bias embedded in our technology, really what I'm suggesting is that the operating system beneath our digital platforms is an extractive anti-human one. And if you look at the origins of capitalism, that's all it was about. It was invented really to squash one of the greatest economic expansions in human history in the late Middle Ages when people were breaking free of feudalism and trading with each other and having local currencies and marketplaces. It was the most peer-to-peer -peer thing you've ever seen. It was like Etsy writ large. Only um, the rich got poor as the poor got rich. So they came up with rules to prevent that. And what we think of as the corporation or central currency as some natural evolution of the growth of business were the opposite. These were 
tools that were used to stem the tide, to prevent the rise of the middle class, and to instead extract value from marketplaces. And most people in business today don't even know that. They don't know where this stuff came from. They think that central currency is just money, and that's the only kind of money they is, there is. They think that the only way to start a company is to get millions of dollars from investors. They don't understand that you can actually uh, base a business's growth on the revenue that it takes in and have a sustainable, even a family-run enterprise, that all these are alternative possibilities. But yeah, whether it's capitalism or whether it's people's fear of one another, which is, you know, pretty baked in from a really long time ago. Any of our inventions, our media, our languages can end up um, going against us, can be end up using them, we use them to control one another. And that's um, because we, we, at each stage along the way, we haven't been willing to really interrogate uh, what we're doing and why, who's controlling a medium. So let's make this a little bit more specific and clearer, perhaps. What are the problems with sort of central corporations or, I mean, centralized currencies or uh, corporations? Well, the chartered monopoly, which was the original corporation, the purpose of it was to make it so that nobody but one person but one company would be allowed to operate in a particular sector. It was literally the king would charter a monopoly. So I would go to you and say, Nico, you know, you can, you are his majesty's royal shoe company. Anybody who wants I'll to make shoes. I'll take the West Indies or something, rather. <laughs> you want the West Indies? I'll give you the West Indies. You are our nation's exclusive company for the West Indies. And... Because West Indies is going to be ours, you own all the businesses in the West Indies are yours. Anybody you. who wants to set up a shop or make rope or do anything in the West Indies, they are a subsidiary of Nico Chartered Monopoly. Thank you. So you'll do that. And did you have a sister? Uh, I have uh, other relatives, but yeah. What was What's one that we like? My wife. Your wife. Okay, your wife. She's now my wife, but... She is going to have my royal shoe company. So anybody who's in the shoe business now works for her. Right? They don't have their own shoe company. Okay. So that's what charter monopolies did. And that's great in a way because now the king gets power. Now I'm going to get interest in your company. I get 10% of everything you do, of course. Let me make it 20. But um, I'll protect You're you with my... You're the original venture capitalist. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> except I didn't have money. Yeah. But I you didn't have, have royal money. I had decree. The law. I had the I had the decree yeah. exactly, and I have the gunships, yes. you know. So I get that. So that was what chartered monopoly did, and that's the same way Walmart works today. They go into a town, they undercut everybody with their low prices because they have capital. Everyone goes out of business, and then they're the sole retailer in the community, and ultimately the sole employer in the community. Then they can pay less wages to everybody, and the whole town goes into bankruptcy, and then they move on. The second uh, invention you asked me about was central currency. And the, the problem with that, again, central currency was invented and all the other currencies were made illegal. So now all of our local currencies, the ones that don't have high interest, the ones that are just issued in the morning and expire at night and exist so we can trade, all of those are illegal. And now we have to borrow money from the central treasury at interest. And that's a problem because if we have to borrow money at interest, we have to pay back more than we borrowed. So where does the more money come from? The economy grows. As long as the economy grows, we'll have more money and we could pay that back. But the economy has to grow. 
And that worked well when you were going to the West Indies or the East Indies and taking over brown people and taking all their stuff. We were growing. Then what happened by the 1950s was there was no more place to grow. We couldn't grow. So we just started, you know, uh, uh, we used television to promote more consumer demand for goods. And then we ended up in a world that's running out of resources and running out of slaves and uh, and people who want to be slaves. And uh, it, it, we've reached the, the, the limit of that growth. Now, Ray Kurzweil might say, oh, no. And he's, he knows this isn't true. He's actually admitted on the side. Oh, we've got to have exponential growth in everything. There is no exponential growth in nature. There is none. The only thing that grows exponentially is cancer, and then it kills you. You know, exponential growth doesn't really happen. So, um, and I know at Singularity University, they talk a lot about getting this exponential growth in your company and everything. No, that's what actually kills, kills planets and species is exponential growth. We don't, we don't get that. We're we're linear, or at best, maybe a little curved, but but no exponents. And um, so so the the there ends up being an anti-human bias embedded in both the corporation and in central currency, because central currency is is not a tool for humans to use to exchange value. It's a system that's demanding that human beings produce more and more faster and faster, or else that we extract more and more, that we live at the mercy of an equation that demands growth. Chartered monopolies were against people. They were literally against people they, so that people could not create value and exchange value between each other. Instead, they had to work as employees for some big anti-human corporation that was now going to extract value from you uh, through the metric of time. You know, you're going to sell your time to a company. And the only ones who used to do that were indentured servants, were slaves. So where does Team Human as an idea or as a thesis come in? Is it sort of like the counter sort of idea to, to this kind of operating system? Yeah, well, in one sense, Team Human is a response to Ray Kurzweil, you know, and, and those of his ilk who say that, Human beings should accept, you know, their their obsolescence. You know, we should pass the evolutionary torch to our silicon successors. You know, when I argue that uh, we should have a place for humans in the digital future, Ray and his people say, oh, Rushkoff, you're just saying that because you're human, as if I've got hubris, you know. And that's when I said, fine, I'm on team human. You know, and I meant it rhetorically, but then the more I thought about it, the more I realized that the the... The construct is really important because being human is a team sport. That's what we forget in our little little virtual reality cubby holes. You know, we forget that that what makes a technology or a language or a medium or a, a social instrument or mechanism work is if it's bringing people together and allowing us to function as the collective being we are. But you know, that narrative is 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 kind of hard to push out there sometimes like I remember maybe it was a year ago I went to to a con not a conference but to a gathering somewhere and I sort of push forward that sort of communitarian social nature of being human and basically the guy next to me like laughed into my face so deeply and profoundly that I was I was like dismayed and shocked like and and, and then came out with the sort of traditional sort of libertarian maybe even Ayn Randian objectivist thing about like 
me, myself, and my own property, and like, you know, egoism is altruism, and we are competitive by nature, and survival of the fittest, and it seems like this is kind of the popular narrative today, and the narrative that you're pushing with Team Human, and that I was espousing at that moment, is not popular one. People don't see it as obvious. They don't even seem to see it as likely quite often, unfortunately. Right. Well, then they're going to suffer and die, you know? And and if that, if that idea wins out, we're not a planet of individuals, you know? The first right that individuals in the Constitution got was the right to assemble, you know? That's because they realize that that's, that's who we are, you know? It, 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 I guess I'm part of the great conspiracy, right? Which is conspire, literally means to breathe together. I like being with other people, and I think that's where we get our power. I get it. If you're in big business, the last thing you want is for people to be talking to each other. They're going to buy less stuff because they're happy and they have friends, and they're going to forge solidarity. They're going to have unions. They're going to want money. They're going to find... They're, people working together is the enemy of kings who want to control us, of presidents who want us to look across the wall at those Mexicans and see them as less than human, to see them as r rapist, killer, MS-13, horrible things. And you get in your house and build your walls and, and, and lock your doors and get your big screen TV and stay in there alone. You know, every night is like the purge, you know, where <laughs> everybody's out there killing each other. You just get the best guards. And what that does is it leads to the current millionaire and billionaire fantasy, which is that the world is going to explode or there's going to be a massive revolution and the best they can do is buy land in New Zealand or Alaska and get electric fences and robot guards and private underground hydroponics and keep themselves alive all alone with their, I guess, their old Netflix tapes to... to keep them happy or some, you know, uh, 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 Japanese made, you know, cyber sex doll and have that until the end. There's all those people who are buying the sort of the nuclear bunkers, abandoned nuclear bunkers from the Cold War and converting them into sort of like five star, sort of like end of the world habitats where those people can go and sort of. Right. And that is the end game of the Ayn Rand individualistic path. Right? Where the idea, the, the object of the game is to earn enough money to insulate yourself from the cruel, horrible, competitive world. That's not what Darwin wrote about in his evolution. It's what no real scientist has written about that as the story of evolution. That's the bastardized story of evolution. You know, Herbert retold. Spencer actually coined the term survival of the fittest, not Darwin. Right. Yeah. So yeah. let me ask you this, uh, because it's, I think it's a continuation of some of those ideas. We all know what an anthropomorphism is. Tell me a little something about what you call mechanomorphism. Yeah, well, you know, anthropomorphism is when you, you know, see the human face in your front of your Volkswagen Beetle, you know, or when you put rabbit ears on your Macintosh and call it, you know, Betty. You know, it's like when you see the human in something else, it's a natural thing that we do. Every time we look in a, a socket in the wall and you see two eyes and a little mouth, like in, in Munch's the, the Scream, you know, it's like, oh, I see it. Uh, 
Mechanomorphism is the opposite. It's where you see the machine in the person or in yourself. So, okay, am I multitasking? What's my efficiency rate? What are my inputs and outputs? I've got, you know, too much data in my RAM. And when when we try to ape the qualities of the machines, which is what we're doing now. And because again, we see ourselves as in competition with the with the robots rather than uh, uh, that the robots are our tools. And it's a problem in that, uh, again, it goes, way, it goes back way further than just technology or digital technology, but it's viewing human beings in terms of their utility value, you know, rather than some essential value. And this is where, you know, we get in trouble with uh, uh, the, uh, both the scientists and the free market libertarians, because I'm arguing that human beings have intrinsic worth. You know, that there's a value to me other than what I produce for the market, that I'm not just an economic actor, you know, behaving out of personal greed. And, you know, one of the, the sort of side effects of that sort of uh, valuing human beings in a particular kind of way based on efficiency and productivity and so on is, and, and I want to share with you, in the last maybe 18 months, two of our friends have committed suicide. So first, uh, it was... You mean you and your wife? Yeah, in our sort of circle of friends here in Toronto, Canada. So first it was a guy, uh, and he was a, a fan of my podcast and a supporter too, and a donor. Uh, he was in his sort of mid-30s. And then he hanged himself one day without any visible outwardly sort of sign that there's trouble i never realized and, I, and then i went back and i was like i should have spent more time with the guy like i was shocked and then just like three days ago um uh, uh, actually that girl was kind of a closer friend to my wife's sister but she had a baby a couple of months ago and she was like sort of early 30s very fit young mother baby two months old and then she hanged himself herself too like do she you probably think... had uh, postpartum depression or something well that you know, for organic sure played play the role there's no doubt about that but but i'm just saying that there's a lot of suicide rate sort of explosion if you will especially in those sort of young people who are supposed to be at the prime of their life at the best period of their life like we're talking early to mid 30s here right you're supposed to be at your peak in any way possibly physically intellectually sexually like in any kind of way so do you think that's connected with that sort of utility ascription to humanity and sort of that mechanomorphism and and yeah i mean maybe not maybe not directly directly but but at least you know, uh, no more than one or two steps removed. So, you know, if our supposedly social media platforms and all of our communications technologies are optimized to extract value from us and to prevent us from forming connections with one another, because the more connections you have with people, meaningful, loving connections, the less money you spend. You don't need to spend money. If you're getting laid by someone you love and you're not gonna. You're just gonna fuck all the time, right? You're not gonna start <laughs> spending money. It's like, why? You want to go to the movies or you want to have sex? You know? Okay, let's fuck, um, right? I mean, you want to go do some meaningless experience that costs a lot of money, or you want to hold hands and walk through the woods and look in each other's eyes, right? The more you are actually with people, let's just have a party. You're gonna 
enjoy. You know, you buy potato chips and that's about it. So all of these platforms are geared toward making us like each other less. They're geared toward uh, these kind of snap judgments we make. Oh, there's a guy with a MAGA hat. Oh, I hate him. Oh, there's a black person. Oh, I like them. Oh, there's a this. You know, so in these sort of instant uh, 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 reptile brain judgments and this uh, induced uh, paranoid, antisocial, judgmental, disconnected state, so the fact that people are feeling more alone today than ever before, that the more connected you are, the more you use Facebook, the more alone you feel, that should tell people something. I think you know? Instagram is the worst, actually, in terms of like depressed people and suicidal people. And actually, oh, we had another cousin of my wife who attempted uh, to commit suicide but failed, luckily. she So she just overdosed on pills and then... We took her to sort of, she went to the emergency and we went to see her and all that stuff, but she survived. But she, she, and she was an obsessive Instagram user herself and still is. And a lot of people, they reach out for help on the internet, which is really strange too. You know, and I've seen that on the, um, and I thought about closing them for this reason, but on the, the message boards I have for my Team Human podcast and people start threatening suicide and it's like, I mean, what do you do? You can call the cops and send them to their house, but it's not like they're going to do it that day. They're saying they're going to do it that month or something. And um, it's it's it puts everyone in a tricky position, you know. And and I mean, I remember I used to know some people who had suicides on their message boards, and I said, "Oh yeah, it's because I, I always assumed it was because of the way that they're running their message boards, or look at who they're attracting, or." Um, but it's not. It's actually. It's everywhere. You're right. I mean, the this uh, there's a mental health crisis that's not. It's not a product of technology. It's a product of software. That's present been, shock, maybe that you call. Some of it, yeah. And present shock that that which is what that book was largely about is you know what happens when you live in a world that's that's been engineered to. Um, optimize your your mind and behavior for certain outcomes and leaving other ones behind. You know, so, so few people are um, in the moment they're in. I mean, even, you know, singularity people, bless their hearts. The reason I don't, I don't spend that much time with that is um, I find it boring. You know, that, that it's like, it's an abstraction. It's a, I'm so much more interested in what's happening now then what's going to happen in the future but it's a very appealing and powerful you know abstraction it's kind of like sort of like the christian heaven abstraction is there too but it's very powerful for some people the singularity is kind of appealing for sort of more intellectual more sciencey kind of people but op offering many of the same things like immortality right. like abundance even utopia you yeah. know, space Christ travel. on the cross was the singularity. It's another <laughs> way of understanding the singularity, it's um, McLuhan didn't know about the singularity, but in, um, I think it was in Mechanical Bride, he said, um, the one moment when the medium became the message was when Christ died on the cross. That the medium and the message were the same thing. And you can think of Christ's death on the cross, you know, I, I mean, it, it, narratively, I'm not saying historically, 
I don't know what happened. But narratively, that's a, that's a singularity. But it's it's essentially it's one of those crossover moments that is is this is is the singularity that everybody's looking forward to. And I understand what happens when you take a bunch of Christian people and you create a, something as discontinuous as the emergence of digital technology, and they feel all unsettled and 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 there's all this wobble. They think, oh oh, it's don't worry, Christ is coming, Christ is coming. But don't call it Christ. We're going to call it the singularity. You know, so. You get the same shape, you get the same story, the same narrative, the same thing that I was complaining about with theater, beginning, middle, end. Don't worry, you're still going to get your end. It's only going to be this instead of that. So to me, the details don't matter. It's the same mythology. And I understand why we long. It's very human to long for an end. But growing up means realizing now, you know, Life keeps going. It's just, it can, and it can keep going. I just had this argument today on on one of my posts about uh, where I was sort of ruminating on manifestos and dilemmas because many years ago I wrote the, my version of the transhumanist manifesto, and then I wrote about dilemmas, and I said that today I've kind of went back on this manifesto stuff, and I'm a lot closer to dilemmas because I thought dilemmas are a lot more honest and truthful. And then this engineer guy who is a fan of my blog said. Yeah, but I believe that the singularity would create this sort of super smart artificial intelligence, which is going to, you know, create this utopia for us, this abundance, solve global warming and, and you know, cancer and death and, and, and you know, uh, wars for scarcity and resources and stuff like that. What's wrong with that? One is you don't need an artificial intelligence to do that. We can do that, we can do that ourselves. You know, two, we're not programming our artificial intelligences to do that. We're programming our artificial intelligences to manipulate people and to extract their money and time and data. Um, so the fact that we're choosing not to do it now, the fact that we're telling the AIs definitely don't do it, doesn't give me hope that AIs will do the thing that we're not doing and that we're not telling them to do. <laughs> you know, I just don't, I don't see it. You know, it's a, it's an industrial age fantasy that AIs will come up with the solution, you know, and it does, it's not going to work like that. It's going to be millions of distributed solutions. You know, we just got to start rotating our crop. We just got to start taking care of our soil you know we have to use less energy these are so what is not the solution science. then do we do we need to sort of become sort of uh technophobes and, and sort of abandon technology altogether because people always say that the easiest way to respond to something like that is like oh but you're such a technophobe and and do you do you just want to abandon technology and and go back to the middle ages or you know, Samuel Butler sort of suggested we destroy all the machines, we give them no quarter, and we hold technological pro progress at the level of sort of pre-industrial revolution, sort of 17th century level. Well, right now, human beings with the technologies we have feels like giving a gun to a three-year-old, you know? We are shooting ourselves in the face repeatedly because we're just 
we have so little wisdom. You know, we have we 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 still don't understand what um, Aboriginal people understood about the soil and the cycles of cycles of life, how to rotate crops and why it works in in various ways. You know, those are the people that now um, uh, uh, farmers are turning to for alternatives to Monsanto style, you know, uh, genetic engineering. Like, uh, so no, it's not about rejecting technology, but retrieving technology that we've left behind. You know, we've, we've developed really good war technology and that's how we took over the world. That's how we killed so many other people. It doesn't mean we're better than them though. And I think that's, that's a tough and controversial point. Just because white Western Europeans were able to conquer Native Americans doesn't mean white Western Europeans were better than Native Americans or that the Native Americans weren't more advanced than white Western Europeans in many ways. Now, a lot of people attack this logic as sort of Rousseau's noble savage or something. I'm not going there. I'm just saying that there are technologies that we left behind that would be really useful, that there are some of these civilizations that managed sustainable soil mechanics for, you know, thousands of years, and that we could uh, avail ourselves of those techniques, but we have a very one-sided understanding of technology that really only promotes that which can be patented. So it's not that our technology is bad, it's that our technology is limited by what can be patented and claimed as unique intellectual property. You know, and a lot of things that are really good for people, back to making love, it's really good for people, but it's not a proprietary, um, it's not a proprietary set of motions anymore. Could you imagine? It's like, oh, you want to do missionary position? You've got to pay $5 to Facebook. You know, you're going to do doggy style. You got to pay $3 to Twitter. <laughs> you know, you could have tried to find, it's like, oh, shoot. It's like you Bikram know? who patented all those yoga poses, right? It's obscene, right? Right. Totally ridiculous, but he did it actually. And then he, he had to issue licenses to all those people and was sort of suing them if you want to do those poses and was winning for a while. I don't know how that whole thing ended, but it was utterly preposterous and yet it was a reality in a way. It was happening. It was sanctioned by the judicial system. Yeah, but oddly enough, when you actually want something to work, like the internet, we ended up using an open source, uh, uh, an open source system. You're talking about Apache and yeah, uh, okay, I see. yeah. It's all you know. It's all it's all open source because it was like, oh, just screw this. Let's just do something that works and it's interoperable. And we won't have to worry about it. Well, speaking of open source or something sort of decentralized, perhaps one of the questions that I had submitted from audience, of course, is Bitcoin. How does Bitcoin fit within this sort of narrative of yours? Does it, and is it going to be? a solution to the problems that you're sort of enumerating? Who knows? I mean, I've got, I'm more interested in, in applications of the blockchain beyond Bitcoin. Yeah, yeah, you that's know. what I meant. My bad, yeah. completely my mistake. Blockchain, let's say blockchain. Absolutely, I, 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 silly mistake on my part. Yeah, we'll see. 
You know, it depends. I mean, blockchain in some ways, and as a Jew, I should appreciate it. Um, <laughs> blockchain is a literal, it's a literal ledger. You know, it's the, the, the object of block, blockchain would be to get every, every piece of value that I'm creating, every bit of value, and have it recorded somehow. As you know, Jaron Lanier has this vision of, you know, we're all producing all this data all the time that's being exploited by others. We should be paid for it. We should know mm -hmm. where it came from. And that's better than nothing, to keep track of everything and make sure everybody gets paid for everything they did. And if you get out of bed on the left side of the bed this morning, then the CERTA company who makes mattresses finds that information valuable, then you get paid 0.001 cent every time you get out of bed on a different side so they can see how you are. I mean, maybe. And so that every gesture, everything you do is potentially monetized. You know, I think it would encourage people to start living in ways that are producing more data. The quantified self for sale yeah. or for hire. Right. And start thinking about your world that way. But, you know, I'm, I'm less interested in getting all of our activities on the ledger than, than I am in getting activities off the ledger. You know, and that actually, if you're going to think about it religiously, that's more Christian than Jewish. It's saying, rather than keeping track of what laws I'm following and not, and is it correct or wrong, according to Talmud, let me just live with love, you know, live through love, and all those natural, natural appropriate actions will, will, will come. So mm -hmm. if we, you know, uh, engender a spirit of sharing between people, they're not going to have to keep track all the time of how many did I borrow from you and how many did you borrow from me? You know, it's like if you go to your neighbor's house to borrow an egg, you've got to keep making sure, okay, that's one I owe you and then you owe me one and you got water from me and then you got this from <laughs> me and then your kid shoveled my walk and then you said hi, which actually made me feel so good. You deserve some points for that. You know, it just, it's like... Uh, you know, for for to the extent that our problems come from our lack of a of a good ledger, then the blockchain is interesting to me. You know, to the extent that the two column accounting ledger that was invented, you know, by by the Moors during the Renaissance, to the extent that that's limited our understanding of value and business to debits and credits, that every debit has a credit and every credit has a debit. And it's a very zero-sum understanding of economics that, that, that still guides us today. To the extent that a blockchain could help people imagine more um, distributed and accretive um, uh, modes of value creation, then it's interesting. It becomes a, a and this isn't the way people are talking about it, but it seems to me to be a more multidimensional spreadsheet, a more multidimensional ledger that leads to other kinds of possibilities besides, is it mine or is it yours? Is it red or is it black? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I see. And then let's go back to your main message here. And of, of course, we already talked about, so, so Team Human is your latest book. Uh, by the way, just want to put it out there. Uh, it's the best book I've read since I read uh, Yuval Harari's uh, book, uh, Sapiens. I highly recommend it, particularly if you are in the sort of community of transhumanists and a singularitarian. It's a must read, in my opinion. 
so I enjoyed it tremendously. So much so that I've asked you to send me a hard copy because I want to keep one in my library. And uh, before that, I only had the digital copy of it uh, as an audio file, an MP3. And we know how you feel about MP3s. Uh, if you read the book, yeah, you'll find but out. But it's at least me reading it, right? So that it's, helps. It's your voice. It does help. Uh, so we talked about the team part of your title. Now let's go back to the human part of your title. What is human? And we already talked about what is Douglas Rushkoff? Who is Douglas Rushkoff? So, and how that's a profound question. What about human? What does that mean? I mean, we're still figuring it out. But, I mean, for me, the thing that's interesting about humans and what, what technology has helped me see is, is you know, what, what do human beings really do that our technologies don't? You know, and humans are weird. You know, we're, we're strange. We, we, the thing we do that computers don't is we can embrace paradox. We can sustain ambiguity over time. We don't have to resolve things, you know, to a one or a zero in order to work with them. We can stay in that weird, liminal, unresolved place. And that's, I think, I think that's where people are the happiest. That's where they're the closest to ecstasy, where where you don't know where you end and the other person begins, where you don't know where to your thought and what someone else's thought. Is this a collective thought I'm having? Where's my dream come from? You know, it's the part of us that, that watches a David Lynch movie and doesn't understand what it meant, but still had a great time and says this was fun. You know, what is that? That's humans. Humans are, uh, are really, I think, the only creature that can that can live in that in-between space of half comprehension. And that's where possibility lives. That's where novelty comes from. That's where all the new combinations come from. And the, the, the reason why I'm trying to celebrate humanity now is because I think that aspect of humanity, the one that really makes us special, is under threat right now. That, that it, it's the stuff that doesn't show up in my life bits. No, it's the stuff that 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 Facebook and and Twitter are not are not interested in. It's the part that doesn't create immediate, uh, uh, you know, financially measurable uh, uh, metrics, and that we're that that's in so in danger of falling between the cracks because we don't really know what it's for. You know, what if it's for its own sake? You know, what if you're actually, it's just. It's there to be there to be there, you know, and that's, again, that gets religious. That's like saying we come in with some value, that there's like a, a soul animating uh, living things, you know, not necessarily a religious soul, like a, you know, Russian Orthodox soul that goes back to heaven at the end, but just soul, you know, the soul that animates life. But, but you said we are the only creature, et cetera, et cetera. The downside of that kind of sort of humanism, or if you will, exceptionalism, though, is that some people have pointed out that it leads to a sort of like exceptionalism of that kind leads to speciesism. Uh, and, and for example, in many communities have pointed out, vegans in particular, uh, have pointed out that it leads to us saying, we are the pinnacle of evolution. We are the supreme intelligence. We are the only creature that blah, blah, blah. Therefore, we can kill and eat and destroy 
and utilize and extract you know we kill like I don't know 70 some billion animals annually on our planet and something like 1.3 trillion aquatic organisms annually right and that stems from you know our supremacy that narrative of, of us being exceptional and the pinnacle of evolution and this supreme being right. and I think it comes from the opposite I think it comes from us thinking that we're just animals and we're fighting if we actually accepted that we have a unique a uniquely conscious role on the planet that we are maybe the only species who could impact the environment as much as we had and do so as consciously as we have then that obligates us to be the stewards of nature you know nature exists and nature is going to try to survive and nature is going to be cruel the one thing human beings can do is try to make nature less cruel. You know, human beings can leave a field more fertile than we found it. We can leave, uh, uh, we can live with compassion, and only by accepting our our unique place—not superior place, but unique role—in in in, uh, uh, in the the scheme of things. Um, you know, can we really rise to the occasion of our own humanity? And rising to the occasion means uh, uh, developing the ethical framework appropriate for a species of our strength. You know, now we have, you know, relatively to the planet, we have the power of a cancer, but really not much more awareness of our uh, uh, self-destructive uh, trajectory. I forget what poet said it, but someone said that human beings have not evolved more for the last 10,000 years than the beaks of eagles. So we have all this power, but not much more wisdom. Uh, well, and of course, Steven Pinker would greatly disagree with that. Um, let me ask you this, because I'm working on this project called Rewriting the Human Story how our story determines our future. Because I agree with pretty much most of the things that you said so far in terms of diagnosis, and I'm thinking, what's the solution? And, and you know, you're coming up with this narrative of Team Human, which I think is a very good and interesting and useful narrative. And perhaps that could be a new story, probably not big enough for my liking, but very good start anyway. Where do you think the narrative fits within this whole sort of situation that we find ourselves in and what's the importance of story and the, the 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 importance of coming up with a new narrative to unite us whether under team human rather than say team america and team canada and team whoever i don't know i'm a little torn on it actually um i don't i don't know if i like the idea of you know having our fate rest on who can tell the best story or the most compelling story. Because right now in America, you know, when there's uh, starving Mexicans or starving El Salvadorians at the border between Mexico and the U.S., Trump tells a more compelling story about these people than I do. So Americans look and say, oh, look at these terrorists trying to invade our country 
rather than look at these refugees seeking asylum from their repressive regimes and poverty where they live. Um, if the if the person who tells the best story wins the meme, then we may be screwed because the 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 fake stories are more compelling than the real ones. Fake news, you know, fake news and reality TV is more compelling than reality, at least for a time and to a certain kind of trained uh, 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 reptilian brain that most people are using when they're interacting with media. Um, so I get concerned, you know, and I had some good talks with them. Um, I had one with um, uh, George Monbiot, who's very into creating a new narrative for the progressive culture. And he argues that people only understand things when they're in stories, otherwise they'll forget them and not get them at all. And you have to just accept that's the way the brain works. And so be it. Um, Jessica Blank, who I had on the show, is also a narrative person. She's done terrific things through narrative. But um, some nerdier part of me or more hardline part of me just wants people to see the friggin' facts. You know, <laughs> it's like... Because this, putting Donald Trump aside, the singularity and transhumanist narratives are very powerful narratives among not only my audience and, and our community in general, but some very powerful and influential individuals who have enormous resources at their disposal. Right. And then the question is, do we create new narratives for them? Do I, do I compete with those narratives? I mean, it's mostly a, a propaganda war at that point. How is my story going to beat their story? Um, if we have to, we have to. Um, but if we're going to tell stories, then I want us to present them as stories, as provisional. Here's one way of looking at it. Here's another way of looking at it. And be, be open and transparent that we're creating narrative structures. Yeah, actually, one of my chapters is called The Danger of a Single Story. And, we're, and I go, you know, uh, sort of talking about how the story of the future cannot be written by one race or one country, maybe not even by one species. Uh, and then, you know, I had some original sort of readings and stuff. And the biggest criticism that I had from people, even though I go through a lot of pain in the end to tell them, you know, the importance of a story is not to give you the answer, but to ask you the right questions so that it, it sort of motivates you to come up with the best answer. And then the, the, the most popular criticism of people was like, we want the story. You, you've done a great job up to here to convince us we need a story, that the old stories don't work and all of this, but you didn't give us the story. And I was telling them explicitly, I can't give you the story. The whole point is not to give you the story. <laughs> right. That's a, no, and I've ended a bunch of books like that, where I have the character even hand the, the pen, the pencil to the reader of the comic to say, it's your turn to write the story. you know. And that's you know the hope of a distributed, digital, interactive, participatory age is that everybody realizes we're writing the story together. You know, if we're going to, if we're still in the place where we're depending on the Pharaoh to tell us what is, which is where we've come in America anyway, where we're depending on a Pharaoh to tell us what is what, then um, I don't know if that will give us the wherewithal to, uh, make it through the coming crises. I don't know if that if that's going to work. They work in small kingdoms, but not orchestrating the a globe of this of this size.
You know, I, I mostly agree with you, but unfortunately we're in the last sort of nine minutes of our conversation, so I have to push forward. And I want to throw in a couple of questions and points of view from my audience. One of them is from a singularitarian called Clyde Dinkins, who wrote a haiku for you. And so he says, <clears throat> does he, Douglas Rushkoff truly think that purist singularitarians will sit by oddly while he engages in his religio-minded endeavors to only improve flaw in perfect human nature. I posit my following haiku poem, poem is apropos. As noted, I follow the traditional Japanese format, no title, exactly 17 syllables total, three segments and 575 syllable segments ratio. So here's the haiku. Rushkov a dreamer, human nature sucks, end it, R Ray Kurzweil is right. <laughs> What's your sort of response to this? Well, if we go on the trajectory we're going, yeah, human life is going to end, so he'll get his wish. And I guess he wouldn't be here either, so he wants to die. Okay. Not to die, to transcend biology. No, he didn't say that. <laughs> That's said, not what he said. Yeah, he said human nature sucks, end it. Right. So, <laughs> some other species can transcend biology then. And we'll see. Good luck. You know, that's fine. I mean, it's fine. A lot of people hate themselves and hate the other people. You know, and that's all right. I'm, I'm, it's interesting to me to live in a world where liking people is radical. I'm, it's exciting, actually. It's an okay. exciting thought. You know, wow. I mean, it's okay. I, I get it. People have done awful things. You know, they have. But human beings also created art and language and thought. Um, he couldn't even hate the species if he wasn't human enough to have that feeling of hate. You know, lizards aren't thinking, <laughs> let's end lizard dumb. They don't, <laughs> they don't think that way. But I get it. And there is. There's tremendous suicide as you were saying before, so maybe he's right. A lot of people are killing themselves. And maybe some of them are killing themselves because they agree that humanity should just end. And they're trying to accelerate that process. But I would think at the very least, um, the parts of humanity that might be worth most worth saving may not be the parts that we try to program into the transhuman version of Facebook or whatever they want to build, you know, to be the next home for complexity. And I don't think they'll be conscious or aware. You know, mm. so I don't know what the I don't know what the point would be. But yeah, if it's if it's crazy optimistic and hopeful to think that human beings have some value left in future. In the future, then that's then I really should keep doing this. Mm. Well, another point of view coming from the opposite sentiment of a, of a sort of a disappointed humanist, perhaps, is, is a friend of mine. His name is James Harvey. He's, a, he's this uh, musician from the Gold Coast in Australia. And he longed me this long email, and the main theme there was kind of betrayal. 
and he was kind of asking you to ruminate on the notion of betrayal produced by sort of his experience of growing up when Kennedy got shot, Martin Luther King got shot, then we had Nixon, then, you know, we had all kinds of scandals like the Nicaragua and Guatemala scandals, then we had, you know, uh, Bill Clinton, and now we're ending up with sort of Trumpism. And so that kind of life experience in a sort of this sort of gentle, artistic and humanistic soul that loves humanity and human beings has produced perhaps a cynical and dispirited and disparaging attitude, if I'm to quote his email. What do you say to people like that? Because they want to be with you, they feel like you, but they've been disappointed by their life experiences. Life is pain and suffering, you know? <laughs> the Buddha figured it out, you know? If you really, in some ways, it's the worst, but the most beautiful thing. Um, it's been hard. It's been hard for a long time. I mean, you know, it's part of the reason I think people like watching, you know, Game of Thrones or something is because, you know, it's a, you know, it's a thinly veiled, uh, uh, kind of a, a medieval uh, medieval world is they look back and you can say, oh, well, it was harder back then. You can get a little bit of that sort of Steven Pinker uh, happiness that, oh, look how far we've come since everybody just raped each other and cut off their heads and stuck them on spikes. Um, human beings can be really, really cruel. And yeah, I lived through those those disappointments too you know my my parents really experienced the discontinuity of the kennedy assassination and first president i knew was tricky dick and he resigned and i <laughs> uh, got reagan and i mean it was crazy um watching the beautiful young idealists get shot and um right yeah it is but uh you know it's that's why i i Turn to more to the existentialists and the poets, to Samuel Beckett. I can't go on, I must go on. You know, I mean, look at Waiting for Godot. Look at, uh, uh, look at, you know, the, the, the Jews of Auschwitz made Hanukkah menorahs out of tinfoil. Victor you know? Franco is one of my favorite guys of that. Group. Yeah. And in I general, mean, anyway. Yeah. So it's like, what the fuck? You know? So, you know, it's, it's, there's darkness in the human experience. And we've all experienced some of that ourselves. I mean, we've witnessed tragedy and inhumanity and all that. But, um, but we go on and we can, I mean, I think the best we can do is to spend what energy we have to, 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 uh, uh, well, to create the kinds of structural change that would make these tragedies uh, less common and less widespread, and then maybe even more importantly, to learn to have the compassion for one another, which then lessens the decree. You know, it lessens the the intensity of the suffering of those. Uh, who, who are going through this, you know, uh, uh, if you have 
you know, family, if you have friends, if you have community, then the tragedy of watching, you know, the Twin Towers and 9-11 go down is different than if you're, than if you're in it alone without uh, a, a sense of collective, collective witnessing. Yeah. And speaking of those structural changes, you, your whole point, which I agree with entirely, is that what we need to do is change the underlying operating system. And that kind of, by the way, was part of my criticism towards Singularity University, where I did this speech called Socrates Deconstruct Singularity University, and it was called The Emperor Has No Clothes, uh, where I was pointing precisely that fact that it's disruptive at the surface, but deep underlying is, is, is more of the same. Anyway, we're out of time. So I just want to ask you, where can people find more about you and your work, Douglas? I mean, if they want to, but not if they don't. I don't want them to suffer. You know what I mean? <laughs> if if hearing that human beings still have something to offer is going to, you know, take them off the track of annihilating the species as quickly as possible, I don't want to slow them down, right? you got to have your <laughs> exponential path and don't but listen to me. I thought you actually do want to slow them down, which is why you're doing your team human campaign. Yeah, but not these guys. If they really want to go for it, they should. I mean, they shouldn't listen to me. But... um. If they do, um, then yeah, come to uh, teamhuman.fm and you can hear, you know, wonderful episodes of Team Human with all sorts of people who are, are, are in spite of bad news, trying to make the world a better place and uh, get algorithms out of uh, uh, sentencing hearings for, for you know, uh, parolees and convicts or, uh, uh, you know, trying to promote more human-centered uses of technology or to uh, uh, help labor or employ ownership of companies. I mean, there's a lot, a lot of things we could do to lessen human suffering in the meantime. You know, even if you want to go to Mars, it's possible that the 8 billion or whatever that are here now don't have to be um, suffering as much as they are. And I think it's worth our time and attention to, uh, yeah, you know. Yeah, my personal attitude towards this is, Let's go for Mars. Let's go everywhere, but let's just not destroy the Earth here while we're trying to get somewhere else. So let's have it both ways, right. if we can. That's the right. whole point of abundance, in my you opinion. You would think, and you'll have more time. You know, you'll have more time to develop a really good rocket ship to go to Mars than have to do an emergency one that's cobbled together with duct tape. Right, right, exactly. Well, Douglas, we've been talking for 75 minutes or so. What's the most important thing that you want our viewers and listeners to take away from this conversation with you today? Um, that there is an ineffable beauty and power in spending real time with other people. And if you can try to find even 10 minutes a week to be in a room with another person without using uh, any mediating technology to engage with each other, um, you'll find it it's like so powerful. It's so positive. And if you can't find 10, then start with five or even two, two minutes a week. Um, it's a really interesting thing just to do it consciously even. Um, I would say a few hours a day. Yeah. But... Well, if you can build up to that, then yeah. But I get it. It's intolerable for a lot of people right now. And I get why, especially if you're aware of it, that you're not on your device or that you're actually with the person in the room. They're looking right in your eyes. I mean, that's hard. That's hard for people. But it's, it's so worth it. Absolutely. For the last 18 months or so, me and my wife start our day with about a 45-minute walk, just the two of us. And it's been the best thing, not only for us as a couple, 
but also for us individually. It's, it's phenomenal. Yeah. And I know it feels, for those of us who are trying to save the world, it feels like a, a guilty pleasure to take 45 minutes away from the work, you know, to actually engage. But you, in a way, you have to. It's the what recalibrates your system. So if you want to think about it in a mechanomorphic way, it's like pushing a really strong reset button. You know, be with nature and another person. It really does. It changes everything. Absolutely. As Aristotle said, you need the weekend to do better philosophy on Monday. Douglas Rushkoff, from one human to another, thank you very much for spending so much time with us today. Oh, well, thank you. Thanks for what you're doing. If you guys enjoy this show, you can help me make it better in a couple of ways. You can go and write a review on iTunes, or you can simply make a donation. 